Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I have had some some feelings lately where I feel like the world is kind of coming back to its senses a little bit. The, the constant turmoil is is slowly subsiding. And there's a number of factors there, and I don't need to get into too many of them. So I thought today would be a really good day to kind of have a conversation about how our industry is built with so many brothers and sisters. We all need to kind of keep an eye on each other, but there's also some little, there's also little pockets of our industry that kind of go off into so many different places. And one of those is cruise ships, the nightclub scenes. There's a lot, so many different niche parts of our industry that just, they're, they're all lighting people. They're all party goers, but they're also not the mainstream. They're not the, the mega conventions. They're not the giant rock stuff but we're all part of one giant conglomerate and we're very inclusive. So I thought today would be a very good day to have a conversation about that. So I reached out to one of my longtime friends. We've never actually worked together, but we have been longtime friends for a number of number of years. So please welcome Guy Smith. He is the owner and lighting designer at Free Radical Design Group. Normally he's out of New York City. Today he is in Mexico. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. I think it's uh, ironic that the world's coming to its senses and you decided to interview me on that day. But um, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. It's all about get that unique it's perspective. Yeah, like things <laughs> less chaotic, more chaotic. Yin and yang. <laughs> so you are down in Tulum, Mexico these days. How's that Tulum, going? Tulum, Mexico, the bustling metropolis of Tulum. It's beautiful down here. This is a place where it has a lot of, of chaotic, creative, destructive energy. You know, they say it's because it's where the asteroid landed that killed all the dinosaurs. Maybe. I'm not a big believer in that, but it, there's a lot of creatives down here, a lot of producers, designers, artists, uh, performers who, are, who came down here to wait out whatever's happening in this world, wait out... Um, protests and wait out politics and wait out uh pandemics and i gotta say this is the best pandemic ever frankly it's been <laughs> really nice down here <laughs> compared the, to being in the big city of the ones of pandemics that i've ex i've uh, encountered since i was over 20 this has been the best and the worst by far oh okay well this is my second this one is definitely better than the last one. Uh, was SARS was was SARS considered a pandemic? No, AIDS was a pandemic. Yes, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That was a long one. Yeah, that was, one's terrible. Yeah, that that one was terrible. terrible. <laughs> definitely, uh, you can't run away from that one. No, there's no, no. There's nowhere to yeah. wait that one out. 
But down here, I mean, it's sunny, there's beaches, there's a lot of, of cross-pollination of ideas. So, you know, people getting together in small groups for drinks and dinner, making dinner at home, hanging out on the beach, um, and kind of learning from each other. I've got to say I've learned a lot about the artistic process while we were here. The few times that I've done work in Mexico, if I had one takeaway, it would be don't take shit so seriously. Yeah. I have done sometimes when I get into this this very American centric tunnel vision focused, we have to get this done and this has to be done and this all has to be a hundred percent. A lot of the people around me are like, does it really? Does it really? You know- Chris, it's interesting you should bring that up because I've noticed throughout my career that lighting designers, lighting programmers, people in the lighting industry in particular have a lot more of a sense of humor about life in general than I think the average people on the street. And I don't know if that's because what we do is creative and artistic and why mostly it is not life and death. Like we're not paramedics or, you know, we're not soldiers we are creating entertainment and we're doing it in the most creative way that we know possible but for whatever reason it's like lighting designers are all funny and they all pretty much don't take themselves too seriously with some blaring exceptions but (laughs) the exceptions only prove the rule though you know you know mostly you know when we get, get together at ldi the highlights are like having dinner with each other and and cracking up about things and telling stories. It's kind of what we do. Yeah, I agree. There's a, it takes a certain breed to come into this industry. It does. It really does. Because if you don't, it will drive you crazy. (laughs) If you take it too seriously, it will drive you nuts. Speaking of special breeds, how, how did you get into this? What, uh, what was the spark that made you think like, Oh my God, that's, that's for me. It's really funny. Um, I was a family therapist working for the state of Massachusetts after college. And, and actually even I was, before that I worked in mental health in uh, mental hospitals as a, as a counselor and detox counselor and what they call dual diagnosis counselor in, in psych hospitals with, with adolescents and some adults. And it did not pay very well. So I needed a night job and I was, fascinated with lighting in particular. Um, when I was six, I started taking things in our house apart. And by the time I was 14 or 15, I was, in, I was living in Nashville and I was working as a technician repairing equipment um, on Music Row for recording studios. And I was always a tinkerer and I had like two or 300 pieces of hi-fi equipment in our house that I was you know, buying and selling and using for parts and whatever. So I took a night job as a technician doing lighting in one of the big mega clubs in, in Boston while I was working during the day in the psych hospital. And I discovered that there were actually a lot of similarities between working in nightlife and working in the psych hospital. The drugs were different and there were no... My interest is so rooms. peaked right now. <laughs> there were no quiet rooms and nobody really sort of minding the store. But other than that, a lot of the behavior was similar. So... <laughs> um, I, really I don't know enjoyed if that's the, the right term, but what? Bunch of bunch of crazy people just running around people. both venues, and knowing how to de-escalate them and calm them down was like a big part of keeping your job. 
maybe that's also part of the sense of humor. Anyway, so, yeah. so I ended up working at this job in uh, Lynn, Massachusetts. Lynn, Lynn, the city of thing. You never go out the way you came in. Um, I think it was the arson capital of the world at the time. And I, uh, I, got, I got really burned out and I needed a break because I was very young. I was working with adolescents and I was like 23. Um, and I went to my boss there and I was like, I need, I need to quit. I need to, to not do what I'm doing right now and take some time off. And at that same time, I was working at a club in Boston called Venus de Milo. And Venus de Milo had just basically jettisoned all of their management and staff. And I was working there at night and they came to me and they said, listen, would you like to take over as the technical director here? This place needs a massive revamp. Um, and we'll just give you a budget and you can take everything down and fix it and, and add whatever you, you think is necessary. And so it's fine. And that week, MTV was coming in to shoot a music, a, a live unplugged video with this brand new band that was called Radiohead. And they were like, we also really need somebody to like put, you know, light the stage. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I think I've seen it done enough times I could figure this out. So that was, that's what happened. I started working in Boston in the nightclubs and I became the technical director of something like 17 clubs there, like running, running club nights every night and working during the day and like changing gels and replacing lamps and, and you know, doing early 90s lighting work. Um, when did you sleep? Name, when did I, I slept in the 80s. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, not since. No. Um, well, by then I was no longer a, a therapist. I was no longer a counselor. Got it. And I had always planned on going back as my fall, you know, for my fallback job if this ever didn't work out. And I suppose it still is my fallback job 30 years later if this doesn't work out. But I think it's going to work out. You're doing good. You're hanging in there. It's going to be okay. Um, it's not yeah, necessarily so was, a plan B. You just have to apply what you've learned there <laughs> to here because it's it's similar stuff. You're really just making really people feel better. Surprisingly so. There was a, a guy I worked for in the club that he was a pretty severe addict. And I, having come from being a detox counselor, actually sort of figured out ways to work with him and get him to teach me, you know, how did IntelliBeams work and what I had to do to keep them maintained and like, you know, troubleshooting and things like that. Um, right on. Yeah. So that's how that happened. And Were then, you a club goer before you got into the, the nightclub scene? No, no, not really. Wow. I really started like as soon as I was 21, I was banging on the doors of the club asking to, even when I was still in college see if I could like get work there. Everybody else was trying to get in the front door and you were trying to get in the, the back door. I was door. trying to get them to open the door at 10 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, what are, you, what are you doing? Who are you? <laughs> Who is this kid? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had a lot of fun doing that. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I made a lot of friends for life. Then uh, I got really interested in theater while I was doing that. And... I met this guy that was on tour with this new Broadway show called Rent. And he really sort of pushed me to buy, you know, all the books 
on lighting, stage lighting. Okay. All the books that are still like kind of, you know, the, the seminal references on that. Mm -hmm. And I read that and then he pushed me to start sort of uh, getting into local productions, fundraisers, Broadway cares, that kind of stuff and, and doing lighting for them. And so I really, really through that got interested in being a lighting designer and like learning how to draft on whatever it was, Vectorworks 1.2 at that time. Yeah. And then he kind of brought me to New York with him and that's how we ended up there. 20. There's re there really is no forward path, but that kind of sounds backwards to me. Like you were a professional before you learned the fundamentals. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's that backwards path, I think, was a very common path uh, at that time and before. People used to work their way up to being a lighting designer by starting out as pushing boxes, being a stagehand. Right. You know, and I was starting out in the, in the clubs, crawling around in the catwalks with a, with a shop vac, you know, vacuuming up all the flammable confetti and whatever else was up there. So, yeah. And that was a designer eventually. I think that's what a lot of people did. There was only like three or four lighting design um, degrees at that time, right? It was like right. SUNY Purchase, it was Yale, there was some other places. But it wasn't really a thing that people necessarily went to school for unless they were just going to do Broadway. Right. So, you know, and there was certainly no courses in moving lights. Like unless no. you went to Austin, Texas and, and got factory certified as a technician, you were really learning it on your own. And it was a jealously guarded secret. Right. You know, yeah, even New York City wouldn't have had many moving lights at all at that time. When I moved to New York City, I got trained at, I think at Bash or Production Arts on how to use a hog. And at that time in New York, I was led to understand that there were only five of us programming the hog too. Okay. This is in the earlier mid-90s. Um, and, you know, we just got the, the spiral bound notebook and a couple of cyber lights and a couple of studio colors. And, you know, we're left in the building overnight to figure it out. Here's the buttons. Here's the cables. Make it happen. Yeah. Just like, we don't know how this works. Maybe you, you can figure it out with this big 378 page manual. <laughs> no YouTube tutorials. No, none of that stuff. Just, just figure no it internet. out. internet. <laughs> There was no one to call. Wow. So yeah. you didn't have any intention of just staying in New York City then? You, uh, you, that was just one stop on the journey. No, I loved New York. I was There's very, a lot very, to love. I was very drawn to New York in the 90s. I was really drawn to the club scene. I was drawn to the theater scene. I was drawn to um, the big production houses like, like Bash and Sea Factor and Carabiner and like and I started actually working at C-Factor doing some of their sort of local shows and really learning from those guys about where the rubber meets the road in the lighting business, you know? Mm -hmm. Those guys did not mess around. Um, they did whatever it took to get things done. It was all about like work ethic, you know, it was, it was, certainly a little rickety sometimes at that time, but, um, <laughs> but it always got done. That was, that was what the C factor was. Yeah. It was that factor of plus or minus six inches that may or may not have been properly measured before everything went in the truck. That was called the C factor when Bob C 
started making trust. And he named his company after because he was like, Very yeah, clever. I don't know. Might get it, might not. I'll bring up a grinder with me. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we, we, the industry was so much more pirate then, you know, yeah. it was really cavalier. I, I want to say rickety was a good word. I think it was rickety. We were still inventing things mm -hmm. there was no standardization like we were creating standards and bob c would have a standard morpheus would have a standard verily would have a standard vl yeah. you know, everything was proprietary cables proprietary connectors proprietary software proprietary controllers everybody had their own equipment like bob you know c factor had their own consoles that they had manufactured that only you could only learn or you could only use there they were not for sale just like yeah. there like Morpheus, just like, you know. Yeah. So, um, and everything, yeah, and it was very much, I think part of the, you know, there was no standardization because at that point you could not marry any of these things together. No. You couldn't, you know, I think the first people that sold that, that kind of equipment was probably high-end, light wave, you know. Yeah. And Maybe, I don't, I'm not sure how DMX actually got started. I know it happened sometime in the late 80s. Um, not too much before I got into the business. That's when designers would readily fly the flag of a manufacturer because their entire rig would be one manufacturer. Yeah. That, that hardly exists anymore. No, and it was actually kind of fun to, it was like, having the, the secret knowledge of like a conspiracy or something <laughs> to be a Verilite series 200 tech, right? Uh -huh. Be entrusted with this like invaluable equipment um, <laughs> and like a refrigerator size case full of parts and gears and belts and boards and, you know, and like yeah. an oscilloscope and like everything that it took to actually like tech out this gear and to be the one person there who actually knew how it all went together and how the brains talked to each other and how the power was distributed and all that stuff. It was very special. You know, it was almost like you were some kind of a guru and, you know, come sit at my feet and I will teach you one of the secrets of, oh, hang on, it's on fire. I'll be right back. Um, <laughs> that's how, yeah, that's, that's what I was doing on cruise ships at the beginning. So when you had all that knowledge, did you, was your goal to apply that to theater or to the nightclub scene? I was kind of two headed about it because I love theater and I love nightlife and I love them both for the same reason, because the, the, the real thing that you're doing as a lighting designer is that you are telling a critical part of the story. And that story is being told by a playwright and actors, but that same story is also being told by a DJ and by sort of the ebb and flow of the crowd. Um, and the goal is to get the audience to understand something about themselves in theater, to see themselves in what's happening on the stage and to take something with them of value, take something with them sort of might, that might be worth considering and discussing and applying to your life. I think that nightlife has the same purpose when it's done right, which is not often, but yeah. when it's done right, like people on the dance floor have a feeling of being connected in a particular way through the music and through the light, through the atmosphere, 
you know, in a very tribal sense, kind of very much like I think people used to experience spirituality, you know, 10,000 years ago in a cave at night or under the stars with a fire, with drums, with music, with, you know, with light, um, with costume, all of that stuff. Yeah, I think that theater and nightlife both stemmed from those original tribal experiences. So for me, the goal is the same. You just have much better tools to make it happen. We, well, those original tools are very effective still too. Yeah. That, this, if, yeah. As long as the fire's blinking, the party's going to go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you just have a little more color control. You, you don't have to throw different powders into it to make it change colors. Oh, man. You just reminded me I have those powders in my bag with me. I think I've been carrying <laughs> them around for years, and I'm, I never have the bag and the fire in the same place. Like my backpack, just I just I've had those bags in there for years. It's really funny. Well, Mexico's a great place. You can start a fire pretty much anywhere you, you want to down there. I would imagine you can try yeah, find you, a place to light a fire tonight. That's a good possibility. <laughs> a terrible place to light a fire is on a cruise ship. Yes. I've put out I think five or six fires on cruise ships. Fill me in on uh, on how that how that opportunity presented itself. Um, I was doing an outdoor event on Fire Island and this guy walks up to me in the DJ booth and he says, hi, I own a, a cruise company. I own a gay cruise company. And he says, um, do you think that you can do what you're doing here on a ship? And I said, I've never been on a ship. So I don't know, but I am willing to give it a try. Okay. And I was in my late 20s at that point. And at that time, cruise ships had just started changing their designs and becoming the kind of the bigger flagships that we have now. You know, mm -hmm. now we have ships with like 5,000, 6,000 passengers. At that time, Norwegian was just starting to roll out 1,900 or 2,000 person ships. And they were um, of a different scale than cruise ships had traditionally been before. You know, the Titanic, I think, held like 2,500 people, but on a tiny little space, and most of them were crowded into steerage below and sort of like, sleeping in each other's crotches or whatever. It was horrible. And now these big, these big ships were coming out and they had a pool deck typically on the second to the top deck. And then they had a, an, a higher deck that was called the promenade deck that had a, like a circular running track and a balcony that overlooked it. And I had a, a look at the designs of these ships, which were mailed to me. And I thought, well, I think that we can put Vera lights up there and some sound equipment and make the whole top deck into uh, a dance party. Now, what I didn't understand is the top deck of these ships was lit up like Walmart. Right. Because, you know, it was a security thing and they didn't want people to slip and fall. And there were also maritime laws about the ship being able to be seen from a distance over the curvature of the earth and whatever like that. So, you know, we got on board for the first time with me and my racks and racks of, of their light gear. And it wasn't a lot. It was something like 16, 18 fixtures. Remember, they used to have those disco balls on yokes. Yep. The VLM. The VLMB. Yeah. Yeah. Genius. Brilliant. Um, so it was that, some VL6s, some VL5s. Um, and you know, all of the boxes and racks and cables and like whatever monstrous stuff that went with it. And 
we started putting it, you know, me, I started putting it together. It was like me and a couple of friends and uh, I'm doing this thing and then night falls and of course all the lights are on, on the ship. And now I've already been dealing with the Marine Department trying to figure out how to get Delta power, you know, into this right. whole thing and really learning about electrical theory from a, a Marine standpoint, very different. Um, and then it's nighttime and I had to go back to, you know, the staff captain and say, well, uh, we have to turn off all the lights, you understand? They're like, you know how to do that. It's like, Those lights like, don't turn off. That's not a thing you do. They come <laughs> on at night and they come and turn off when the sun rises. Um, but they agreed to do it. And, you know, we had some haze and we had a sound system. And it was really the first of that kind of dance party at sea. Um, and the captain was very excited about it and the cruise ship company was very excited about it. And apparently where we were in shipping lanes, other cruise ships got very excited about it, but not the good kind. Um, the captain told me that a princess cruise ship was coming the other direction in the same shipping lane and were frantically radioing us, asking if we needed to have our passengers rescued because of the horrendous fire um, that had engulfed the entire top deck of the ship. <laughs> and and the, the, captain, <laughs> the captain apparently said, no, there is no fire. We are having a party, but you are welcome to come aboard. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how that started. That would have been in like 98, 99, I think. Well, as a person who has also had to throw parties on the top deck, thank you so much for paving the way because you had some very tough conversations that I never would have been able to pull off because asking the captains to do things to make parties better, they don't get it until they see the results. And once they see the results, well, like, oh yeah, look at what I did. I turned off the lights for you. Aren't I a great captain? Well, but before no, they, that, they, they will not. They wouldn't turn off the lights without seeing paperwork. And right. So what I devised was a spreadsheet that calculated all of the wattage of all of the lighting that was on the top deck already existent. Okay. And then I, I created a, another tabulation of all of the wattage of all of the moving light fixtures and the light output of the moving light fixtures and basically said to the chief engineer, look, I'm just replacing the lights that you have with lights of the same value and brightness. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that they will change color and I will be controlling them. And in the event of an emergency, you know, I would hit this button and they would all go white and it's now the same brightness as it would be with your lights on. Right. And he said, okay, all right, I understand that. That's numbers and numbers. Okay, great. And that's how we got along. Um, so I had to do that a few times on different ships as we came on board. And after a while, the, you know, the chief engineer would be like, you know, like on a like we'd be on first name basis. Yanni, Sal, you know what we're doing? Go do it. Let's go. He's like, oh, you have <laughs> your tails from last time. <laughs> that is the a language that they can speak. That is a uh, that's a cross cultural language right there. You're like, no, no, no. I'm just you turn yours off. I'll turn mine on. We'll we'll have a party. Volt, and they'll all thank you. Wattage, loose lumen, like that. Yeah, that the they speak the language of. Uh, electrical engineering. 
Yeah. That's critical. And you know that everybody on the princess ship going the other way was looking at the party going like, why doesn't princess have this? They were. In fact, there was one ship that we pulled up next to at night and in the, and what, you know, and then like everybody's in port all day and then we start pulling away uh, in the afternoon and they had on the other ship, they had stitched together a whole bunch of white bed sheets and then somehow managed to paint in black lettering on a sheet that was, must've been like 20 by 30 feet. Take us with you and unfurled it down the side of the ship <laughs> for us to see as we pulled away. <laughs> as if right. it was your job to save the party refugees. You're like, no, come on, everybody. <laughs> Jump in the water. We'll get you. We'll get you. We yeah. have moving lights and martinis. <laughs> it was it was really, it was great fun. I did it, uh, something like a total of 102 charter sh- cruise ship charters. Um, and wow. about 80, 80 or so of those were with this gay cruise company called Atlantis, Atlantis Events and RSVP. Um, nice. And it was great because they really understood, like the owner of the company also really understood what the party was about and wh- how, what that value was to the community to be able to be part of it. They under- he understood that people came to these cruises like largely to experience this very kind of like this free out at sea under the stars, like high production tribal experience with great music and lighting that went with the music and like told a story. And that's, you know, gave me a lot of freedom and a lot of support to do what we did. So that's probably one of the, the most competitive factors of the nightlife and nightclub industry is remote location there's a feeling like we're not supposed to be partying here, but we're fucking partying here. And I can only imagine that's, that's exactly the appeal there. Yeah. uh, People come to a nightlife experience to, I think, or at least in my, in my case, I go there to feel like an otherworldly experience. I go there to experience something special that, that could not happen on earth. Um, and so that's really what we try to create. We try to create something that feels so different and so magical from everyone's day-to-day life that they kind of walk away feeling like, you know, <laughs> like they walk out the door kind of a different person, for at least for a little while. Like they escaped. It is. Uh, it's a, well, it's a, it's a cathartic experience. Yeah. And it's a catalytic experience. Just like any, any good entertainment is, you go there to... Yes, to escape from daily life, but also to become part of something else, to escape on a vehicle that, yeah. is, that is special and magical. So back then, that would have been tenfold, because when you're on a cruise ship, there, up until even the last five years, there was no internet. There was very limited mm-hmm. television on, t- on the cruise ships. Mm-hmm. There was no phone calls. There was mm-hmm. no Twitter to be to be sharing those stuff when you were on a cruise ship you were isolated you were quite literally on an island away from everything else right but the only people that were around you are like-minded individuals they're like we are here for a very specific purpose exactly exactly you're with two thousand of your peers whether you know them or not 
So there's also a certain like amount of the ice is already broken. You know that whoever you're encountering, whoever you're encountering, is going to be like you on some level. Right. And and so there's a lot less feeling of having to edit yourself or feeling judged or like whatever. Like you can walk around in a costume all day long and people will be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like I totally get it. Yeah, they you'll be celebrated for your commitment and not judged for your like for your what the fuck, you know? Yeah, yeah of course you're wearing a, a costume today. Why of not? You it's, look like a dog. Yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah. You're you're all you're among friends. It's all yeah, safe. You're in a you get it? good community here. One of the things I really miss is the feeling of nothing on land matters when you're out on the cruise ship. Because especially back then, right. just nothing, nothing could touch you. You didn't really, it didn't really matter what was happening. But you're also time. like, you're, you're, as the lighting designer, you're instrumental in creating that illusion, which means that you really have to know what is the marine department, how do they work, how do they think and talk, what is the hotel department, what do they need from you, and what do you need from them, and how do you get it? What happens when there's a fire? When your equipment catches fire, well, right. you do not want the fire team to put it out. You want to put it out before they find it, uh, before they catch it. So you're like prepared with all of that, like standing there with fire extinguishers around, me, you know. Um, there is like, it's really funny. There was one day when we were on a cruise ship and the propulsion system went down. All of the generators went down together because there was some problem where they use seawater to cool the generators below decks okay the seawater filter had become full of some kind of clam that had gotten okay. on the ship in colder climates and then when they when it came north or when it came south they all died and got sucked into this thing and the whole propulsion system air conditioning electricity everything went down the whole ship went completely dark except for one emergency generator up on the top deck. I happened to have been tied into the buses on that emergency generator that was also okay. providing emergency lighting throughout the ship, not air conditioning, nothing else, just emergency lighting and like, not even in the rooms, just like in the hallway. And so the party kept going as the ship was drifting <laughs> without power, apparently like getting dangerously close to some rocks. Okay. And, um, and you know, the captain, the Marine department, whatever had, were coming upstairs. They were kind of like marveling at what was happening, but like there was this dire emergency happening. Alarms were sounding all over the ship. Crews were running around trying to rectify the situation, but this big party was going on unabated without any of the guests even realizing anything was wrong. And, and the Marine Department said, you know, this is ideal. No one's in the hallway. No one's in our way. No one's panicking. We can just fix this thing and, you, and the party can just keep going. Like, we'll let, we'll let you know when the emergency's over, but <laughs> right now, don't stop the music. You were literally the opiate of the masses in that case. You're just like, everybody get up here. Why go to your room anyway? There's no AC there. Come on up. I mean, is a, it's a whole new, whole new way of thinking of like party till the wheels fall off. Yeah, doing. the alarm bells are as long as the alarm bells are in time with the music, you just keep going. 
Change yeah. the BPM to match the alarms. Yep. <laughs> Couldn't hear them over the sound system. Dude, um, uh, if only the Titanic had been so smart to just put a disco. <laughs> I don't think that would have helped them much. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was good. It was really, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I have really, really good memories from doing it. I quit doing it like two, three years ago now to uh, open a nightclub of our own in the city to start doing sort of different kinds of projects. I think after 102 cruises, I finally was like, this is starting to feel a little bit too much like Groundhog Day. I need to, I need to try some new things. And I think I, I would still like to go back to it. You know, now, now that I've had a break and I look back on it, I really enjoyed it. And I might, I might go back to doing it again a little bit. You, you got to miss the cruise out there, right? The, the... I miss the family. Yeah. Because you really, really get close to people when you're working with them under that kind of, under those conditions. Our production got to be very, very high. Um, we went from having, you know, whatever, 16, 18 moving lights to having like 160. Right. And plus lasers, plus special effects, plus, you know, these huge sound systems, plus multiple LED walls on big constructions of trust. And still only 24 hours, really, to put it all together and program it. Right. Um, and that's a lot. You know, and I actually started to develop some, some kind of permanent back and leg injuries from pushing boxes and sort of like leading. Like, I always felt as lighting designer, master electrician, crew chief programmer, I had to lead by example. So I would be the first one in the truck. I would be the first one in the ship. I would be the first box that got pushed somewhere into an elevator. And, you know, let me tell you out there, kids in radio land, you will develop some pretty nasty bone spurs and back injuries from doing that for 50 years. Um, yeah, that'll get to you. You get to, your body gets old and broken. <laughs> and you have to take care of it, which I did not know. I, that was my mistake. Yeah, cruise ships are not a, an easy environment for load ins and outs and, uh, and no. production in general. They're not designed for it. <clears throat> and, you know, the ship's crews are coming from so many different backgrounds. And mostly what they do is they do a track. They don't have to build or anything or take it down very much. They mostly just have to, like, run a show and press, press certain buttons to get things going and stopped or whatever. And now you're asking them to, for essentially, like, a, not much more money than they were making to do that track, they now have to, like, push boxes and use tools and like wrench things. And they're all coming from different countries and different backgrounds and different levels of training. Right. And you have to kind of show them, this is how the ratchet strap holds this truss to the railing. And this is what protects the railing. And this, every single one has to be done exactly like this. And no, you can't cross the ratchet strap that way. No, it can't be folded over. Like, so there's like a lot of leading by example. A lot of like this, the boxes with this color go on this deck on this side, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, it gets to be a lot. It's a lot of work. That is a, that's a really interesting topic, actually. A lot of the people on cruise ship, uh, the, the vast majority of the crews do like a 12-day loop or a seven-day loop. So they just have enough entertainment to entertain their guests for seven days, which means and it's they have about just enough crew, just enough crew right. to, to pull that off. Right. So they've got three days of shows 
and they do it over and over and over and over again. And then when a guest entertainer comes on or a get like a big special event, two things happen to them. Number one, they're very excited to break that cycle. And number two, they're very overwhelmed because not now on top of their normal daily stuff, they have to, you know, as soon as they get off that job, they have to come and help the special event. So they, you know, it's not uncommon for them to be working 23 hours to make it happen. And for a while that was okay. And then they instituted some labor laws. I want to say like five years ago that were agreed to by the cruise companies. Cause obviously they're all, you know, they're flagged in ships that don't really have in uh, countries that don't really have labor laws. Right. So for a while that was fine and you could do whatever you wanted. But then I don't know if it was kind of like a unionization or, or like, a str- I don't know what happened, but all of the crews now suddenly had limitations put on them. I think partly because we kept on increasing production value, which just took more and more and more of their time to the point that like their crew was burning out. Our crew was burning out, you know, they, they literally could not keep, um, they couldn't keep up with their own responsibilities right. on board and ours as well. So things have gotten better for them and things have changed. And now, you know, obviously the cruise company is bringing on a lot more labor and you know, the charter company is bringing their own people up um, rather than it just being me and like 10 of my friends who get a free cruise for building and taking down a dance party. <laughs> It's it's a it's a very slippery slope in the in the regards of like well can't you just do one more hour I mean where else are you going to go you're on a cruise ship it's not like you can go watch a movie or something like why don't you just work another hour and next thing you know you you're not sleeping you're wow. you know you're going insane and they were yeah we were just really like and we don't know what their own personal lives are like so we were just really ratting them out. Like just stripping, stripping them of all dignity at that point. Um, <laughs> and you know, these there's like that scope creep. Like you don't really realize you're doing it, but with every cruise, you add a few more lives. With exactly. every cruise, you add you know a, like a little bit bigger video wall, and all of a sudden it becomes like you're doing ultra music festival on board a ship, and and you still have the same ten crew, right? And the same twenty four hours. Yeah. And it just becomes like you just run up against the very limit of human possibility. Yeah. And uh, one of the other very difficult logistic factors is that once you've trained one person, how a ratchet strap goes on, you come back next week and that person has gone home and another person has come to replace them. Every time. And now you're training somebody else how to use a ratchet strap again. You're like, oh, just. That is why we brought like, we found a bunch of very competent people who were our friends and who trusted us, who would come on board and they would kind of work one for one with the ship's crew and show them how it was done. And, and these people became really fantastic stagehands, like really like hardworking, quick thinking, trouble, you know, problem solving stagehands with like really professional ethics. And um, and then they would go home and go back to doing whatever there was they were doing, like being an executive at Univision or, you know, or <laughs> doing hair and makeup at a club or whatever it was that they were doing. And, um, and like the irony was that any, you know, if any one of them could have gone and been a stagehand, like 
working for a touring company or whatever it was, but it really wasn't what they wanted to do. They just wanted to do these gay cruises with me. Right. Or parties that we, or, you know, parties that we did on beaches, on land and whatever, you know, uh, these one-offs and then go back to doing what they were doing. I mean, well, I wish, like some of them were really overqualified. <laughs> <laughs> friend who's like, uh, he's a financial advisor. He's a wealth man advisor in real life. And then we'd come on board these cruises and push boxes. I'm like, you could, you could just rent out the presidential suite for yourself and, and do this on vacation. He's like, and he said, it wouldn't mean anything to me if I just came to this party without actually building it. I like being able to come here and, and saying to my friends on the dance floor, I made all this. I was part of making this. What do you think of that? Yeah. <laughs> Look at all this wealth I managed. <laughs> <laughs> He was prouder of that than what he did for a living. Oh man. That's a, that's a great story. I, those are the sort of stories that I think that the, uh, become a roadie for a day out on tour would work, but it never does. Uh, when they try and advertise like, uh, like a VIP package where like become and hang out with the road crew for a day Yeah. in that situation, that sounds great. Uh, the few times we've ever done it out on the road, it hasn't turned out quite so well. It's usually somebody who has this, idea of what a road crew does and they're like oh wait a minute you guys are you guys are working really hard i mean look at them doesn't it look like we work really hard we're not like instagrammable people <laughs> we're industrial strength <laughs> like you're not coming up you're not coming up and talk to me because you think i'm pretty you know that we're working you can see it like anybody yeah. like i'm surprised that people had any kind of misunderstanding <laughs> I mean, like, look at the people who get off of a bus on a tour. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So have you learned from trying to do everything yourself? Have you, uh, have you built a community of people around you to help you know? Absolutely. Well, that's why we changed the name of the company from Guy Smith Productions when it really was just me <laughs> to the Free Radical <laughs> Design Group. Because now it's like, I feel like I benefit a lot from new perspectives and new ideas from the people who I work with. Even if it's like their first time ever doing production, I have seen a 22 year old look at what I was doing and go, hey, wouldn't it be easier if you did this? And you know, if I didn't stop and consider that, you know, I would, I would have not gained from the benefit of doing that and then being able to go to the next gig and say, I invented a new way to do this. <laughs> yeah after you know 20 20 years it's it's very easy for us to get set in our ways so sometimes it requires a new opinion or a new set of eyes coming like man that is not the best way to do that anymore i was on a, a coachella did a cruise once and my husband and i and and our friends went as as stagehands to be part of their stagehand crew and we designed the lighting on, on, the, on the pool deck. But their stagehand crew had been working together for uh, Golden Voice for like 25 years. And they were really rough and they were very tight as a family. And they really, in a way, kind of resented that there was this, you know, all gay dance group that was coming on board and trying to tell them what to do. But their boss, had said to them, no, these, these guys, you really need to listen to them. You need to really do what they say because they really know what they're doing. Well, one of us 
was this 26 year old little sparkle pony who would dress in tiny booty shorts and rainbow, had rainbow colored hair and wore high tops with unicorns on them. Like he was the male embodiment of My Little Pony. Okay. But he really knew rigging. He really knew how to run data the way I liked it run. He knew how to properly distribute power. He knew like all this stuff because he and I had been working together for like four years and he was very, very smart and, and quick. And at the beginning, nobody would listen to him. And it was like, and people were starting to do things at cross purposes until finally the production manager was like, listen, guys, just do what he says this time. Let's give it a try and see what happens. So third or fourth day of the cruise, their, their foreman comes over to me. Their supervisor comes over to me. He's like, you know, uh, that little, uh, I don't know what you guys call it, but that little kind of she-he guy that you brought on board, I really didn't like him. I really didn't like him. But he's won me over. That, that little pony knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> I'm like, you see? So in a way, we're spreading the, spreading the word of God as we go around the world on these ships. The world is a better place. The world, every time I hear that story, the world has become a little better place. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. That is yeah. the epitome of just shut up and listen. Just listen yeah. for 10 minutes. You'll see. You'll see. Yeah. He's half your age and he looks like he, you'd buy him in a toy store in a plastic box, but he really knows what the fuck he's doing. You gotta just listen to people sometimes. Yeah, we used to run the motors like this, and then my little pony came over and told us how to run the motors like that. And it turns out he's turns out oh, the motors work upside down. Oh. <laughs> 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 well now we don't have to run so many cables. It's well, Thanks, my little yeah. pony. <laughs> thanks, my little pony. <laughs> that should actually be the FRDG tagline. Free Radical Design Group. Thanks, my little pony. <laughs> <laughs> oh man alright so we are almost out of time we went on some serious tangents there that is uh, these are all great stories oh my god the hour has just flown by flown by I want to end with a question that I I, uh, I have to get a little vulnerable here okay. going to see my very first LDI you were the very first lighting designer uh, that I ever got to hear do a speech. I sat in on one of your courses and you were talking about all the things that you were doing. And uh, that was my very first time ever listening to another designer. I, I really didn't know any lighting designers before then. Oh my God, I'm getting chills. Really? That's yeah. amazing. Uh, LDI would have been 2000 and... 2005 wow I think. wow yeah. that's so cool and one of the questions that somebody asked you that you didn't have an answer for was what is your style do you have is there a guy yeah. smith style well it's funny i think after i got answered that asked that question i started looking at other lighting designers now 
And, you know, we don't necessarily look from that perspective at other lighting designers. But I started looking at other lighting designers and, and at their styles. And I think that my, my style is broad strokes, large gestures, um, and dynamism. I like working in the element of time over a long term and over a short term. And I, I like working, you know, kind of like in almost like an operatic form where you have like kind of um, a, an introduction, an exposition, and then you have an imbroglio, you have like where things starting to get more chaotic and where a problem gets introduced and then kind of a resolution to the whole thing, whether, whether it's theater or whether it's a nightclub experience or whatever it is. Um, when I've looked at other people and kind of compared my work to them, I think my work has more of a sense of broad gestures than, than making like very, very specific, um, beautiful tableaus. Does that hmm. make sense? Yeah, more all-encompassing. Yeah. Broad strokes. Yeah. Broad strokes. I can see that. Uh, yeah. you, you're basically recreating the primordial fire as opposed to pin spotting the, the crickets, I guess. Exactly. And I understand nice. also that crickets do need pin spotting. They do? Sometimes. When they do? But there are, there are certainly lighting designers who focus more on that. And I admire them because they can work for like an hour on making a single picture absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And it's, it's sparkling and gorgeous and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I think my, my, my style is a little bit more grand, a little bit more um, impetuous. Does that make sense? Ooh, impetuous. That's a good one. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Right on. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Guy. I appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure that uh, you've got plenty of plenty of fires to go light and throw and change the color of some fires with your with your powders down there. <laughs> well, Chris, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you for the opportunity of, of being on your podcast. It's been great fun. Always a pleasure, Guy. Hope to see you soon.